heartbreaking, hope-building, life-changing. The text that Ben just read for us, we see all three of those elements sewn into Jesus' response to the crowd that has caught up with him. Some portion, we don't know how many, but some portion has followed Jesus to the east side of the sea. They traveled all night, they woke up, saw he wasn't there, and they traveled all the way across to find him. Remember, these are his newly committed disciples. They said that we want to follow him, and if we need to, we'll take him by force. Jesus, knowing that, and knowing that it was not yet his hour, the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his entering into Jerusalem to be welcomed by palm branches and celebration and Hosanna in the highest, that time had not yet come. So Jesus evades them. The crowd who believes they've committed themselves to him, or at least coming to him to make sure he commits himself to them, has followed him and they find him in the synagogue. The synagogue was like a church for the early Jews just a few hundred years beforehand at the destruction of the temple where they were gathered together for worship. When that happened and they had to spread out for teaching and services, they could do many things there, but they couldn't observe the temple sacrifices at these synagogues. Well, Jesus is there as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher, and he's teaching to his 12 disciples, and the large crowd has come and made their way to him. They finally caught up to him. And in the text we see today, it is one of the most heartbreaking scenes that we can ever imagine under 40 hours, around 24-ish or so hours probably, since this masses, thousands and thousands of people probably, that have come to follow after him, or so they've claimed, will walk away from Jesus. Heartbreaking. The text is also hope-building, as we're going to note three different factors of the success of our God. He is always successful in all he does. There's no possibility of the opposite. So our hope is built as we look to the Lord, away from our circumstances and certainly away from ourselves. And in that, we have the, the reality of our testimonies, the reality of the faithfulness of our God, that our life is changing. Our life has changed and is changing all who believe upon Christ, who come to eat and drink of Him, who feast on Him, to believe on Jesus. Our lives are changing. So as we notice these three elements, that God in His glory would bring you, if you don't know him, to become a follower of Jesus, to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus. And for us, the many who are watching of uh, the congregation of Grace Bible Church and others who know the Lord and are, and are watching this at this time, to us, we are stirred to celebration and a reminder that no matter our circumstances, we have hope because we look to the Lord, the life-changing God. So before we dive into those later two elements, let's unpack a little bit this first component of the heartbreaking elements of this text. We see two factors here, two factors of the heartbreaking components of this text that we see really exemplified through all of human history since this point. The first is that all recognize their physical hunger, but few actually recognize their greater spiritual hunger. The individuals that came and gathered around Jesus, hearing his teaching at the synagogue and interacting with him, that he addresses them at this point. They've walked all the way around the sea. They are hungry. They're ready to eat again. Jesus, this prophet like Moses, Moses who God fed his people through, fed them year after year, meal after meal. Jesus, now the one who is like 
Moses, who speaks forth the word of God, who will feed his people, who will not simply give them food, but rather he is himself the food that they're to partake of and have life in. They come to Jesus ready to eat. They're certainly aware of their grumbling stomachs. But as the text progresses, we see that they are, their hearts reveal that they are grumbling against God. And what we'll begin in verse 41 with some grumbling amongst themselves. Thinking this Jesus needs a PR man because he can't be making these types of statements to come and to eat of him. It will boil up in a matter of paragraphs to their accusation denying his very identity. They'll go from believing he is the Messiah, the prophet, the prophesied one of God, the one like Moses. They'll believe he's them to all of a sudden saying, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And it will climax with them abandoning and leaving. See, they're aware of their physical needs, the physical food. They, they come to Jesus longing for another meal. And the dinner bell is ringing and they're ready to eat again. But Jesus will not offer them another meal. He won't take some combination of fish and bread and multiply it to once again meet all their physical needs for that season. Rather, he offers them something far greater. He offers them to come and to eat of him, to partake of him. He is the living bread from heaven sent by the Father. But in their ignorance to their spiritual needs, they do not desire to partake of Jesus. They only want a meal from Jesus in verse 52, things boil over as they gain buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse. They long for a Jesus in their image, as we discussed last week. And immediately upon hearing his words, the truth is so weighty that they have buyer's remorse. Jesus, the love of God, the Lamb of God, the light of God, the Word made flesh. He has a way of like a mirror revealing our hearts, doesn't He? That's what His Word does for, for us. The Spirit uses the Word of God to reflect in us a, a deeper reality of our depravity and our desperate need for Him to be filled. But many will choose to live in ignorance, unaware of their greater spiritual need. And Jesus responds to them in this way, and this unfolds for them a greater hunger. Even though he speaks to them, they can't grasp what's taking place. It reminds me a lot of John chapter 3. Do you remember that scene with Nicodemus? Jesus tells them, unless one is born again, born from above, they will not see the kingdom of God. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And what does Nicodemus respond to Jesus in John 3? He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And to that, all the ladies that are listening said, no, 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 no. They're unaware of their physical needs. They're aware of their physical needs, but they're unaware of their spiritual needs. But that's who Jesus is. He comes to give them life eternal that, yes, will impact the physical. But our desire oftentimes is to downplay the reality of our desperate circumstances spiritually. In Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, we see 
the Israelites are grumbling against Moses and against God. They grumble and they grumble and they grumble. And this really represents much of the 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. They grumble and they grumble and they grumble. And it gets to a point of intensity in which God begs the Lord. He looks at the people and sees that they are preparing, they're, they're escalating like a pressure cooker, building and building over time. And what Jesus does, knowing it's not yet his hour, he says these true words to him that they're spiritually blind to see the need that they have. And like a pressure cooker boiling up, it leads to grumbling of their lips. And Moses says of the Israelites, God, they're going to kill me. They're so angry with me now that they're prepared to pick up stones and kill me. Jesus knows as well that his speaking of truth and their true spiritual need leads this group to take him by force if needed. But he knows his hour has not yet come. One of the things that they'll say in Exodus chapter 17, and God will remark regarding their grumbling, is that the people in grumbling test the Lord and say, is the Lord really among us? Their grumbling places them at the authority seat to judge God. What we'll see next week is that God tells us to judge with right judgment. And He is the only one that judges with perfect right judgment. But all those that have life in Christ, we, we see with the eyes of the Lord, we, we see as He gives us new life. But if we're not aware of our spiritual needs, how in the world can we discern such things? We cannot. This is heartbreaking. And it leads the people in this way to question the very nature of the Messiah, the one that they claim to commit themselves to just a matter of hours, less than 40 hours earlier. They find themselves distancing themselves from Jesus. And upon hearing the truth that he offers, they walk away. This is a tragedy because though all are aware of our physical needs, few are aware of their spiritual needs. And tragically as well, as we look at further verses, many long to work to fill their own spiritual needs. They're, when they find out about their spiritual needs, when they listen or they, or they simply are aware that, that by God's grace, they do have a greater need that can be met by physicalities as they know them. They long to work to justify themselves. They long to work to clean themselves up to some way by their own might. But few, as we note in this text, will believe in Jesus to fill it. So those that become aware, many that become aware of their spiritual needs, and we're not just physical, emotional, mental beings, but spiritual beings as well. God has given us a soul. And they'll long to clean themselves up, to work their way. We see this noted in the way that the Israelites, though they know these Jews that have come during this Passover time, they've come following Jesus around the sea, they come aware of the Scriptures. They know of their history. And in their knowing of the history, as they circle around, they come, they mix up the story. Do you see what they did? They elevate Moses and they cliff note God. And they say to Jesus of Moses, who gave us bread always, what are you going to give us? And Jesus corrects their false presupposition. Jesus, who is truth, he corrects them. And he says, Moses didn't give you that food. And he blows their mind. And he doesn't just say the Father, which itself is incredible, but Jesus says, my Father. 
Every good and perfect gift is from God above, the, the Father of heavenly lights. And he corrects them of who is the true gift giver. And not only does he tell them that God is the one that gave them, the Father is the one that gave them this, these meals through Moses, but he says, I am the bread of life come from the Father for you. And they're so darkened, they're so confused in their own understanding that how do they respond in verse 34? They say, sir, that's great. Give us this bread. Their hearts are so darkened that they, they hear what he's saying. They hear the big claims that are stumbling blocks, but they're so fixated on the physical, or should we say so misconstrued by the spiritual, believing they can do something they really cannot do, and neither can we, that they forget the stuff he's previously said and say, sir, give us this food. We would love to eat always. So let's eat. It's like they're tucking their collars in, putting the napkin in. They're ready to feast. How are you going to do it this time, Jesus? We're ready to eat. But they're not. We'll do our part. We'll eat so much there'll be no leftovers like there was yesterday when you fed us. This is the very component that Jesus is saying that he is the only one. It's not to him who works, but who believes that God accredits to them as righteousness, as Romans 4, 5 states. There's a longing within us and within you to work ourselves to the Lord, to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves spiritually full. But it's foolishness that believes that we can climb to God. But oh, God's grace that he would send the bread of life down who is his son, his only begotten, his beloved one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, who would come and take on flesh and dwell among us. And all who believe in him have life. The crowd of this loosely but newly claimed committed followers, they hear this word of truth and they abandon him. They leave. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but this text is hope-building. It's hope-building. Hope-building because God is always successful. Their very leaving fulfills God's plan. It was not the hour. Jesus, earlier in the interaction, he leaves them at night. They see that he's gone, that he's passed over them. That is completely a pun that is intended they passed over him. They go to the other side. They find him again. And he knows their heart is, is still. It hasn't changed. Their heart is still. If he won't come with them, they'll take him by force. He knows his hour has not yet come. And he gives him this hard truth. It is truth, but veiled in symbolic type language. And it's a stumbling block to them. And they, by choice, leave him. For the hour has not yet come. Jesus is successful even in giving them this hard truth that leads them to a visual heartbreaking situation. God is always successful. In our text, we see three different particular components I want to draw our attention to that every one of us should look to and should become a point of celebration and great joy and peace. For God is always successful. This is hope-giving. For God is always successful. First, we note that the Father successfully sent the true bread from heaven, that is the Son, into the world to give life. The Father successfully sent the true bread from heaven 
the Son, into the world to give life. Even in chaos, God is always successful. Even in apparent chaos, God is always successful. He sends the Son, who is the bread of life. He was successful to do so. There's no possibility of the opposite. God is perfectly successful. Though this scene ends with the multitudes leaving Jesus, there is no possibility that God will not be successful. He successfully sent the Son. And Jesus speaks with certainty regarding His identity. It leads His disciples at a point of anxiety. They see the masses leaving Him. Can you imagine this scene at the synagogue? Jesus has just taught, and now He's addressed the crowd. Everyone's getting up and they're leaving. What a chaotic, heartbreaking situation this would be. But He will be successful. You and I, in seasons of chaos, we, in looking to ourselves, will find ourselves riddled with anxiety and fear. But the joy of those who know Christ, the bread of life sent from the Father, is that we gain Christ in the chaos. We cast our cares upon the Lord and He will sustain us. He will sustain us. Think about that. Our confidence as believers is rooted in the Lord. It's not rooted in ourselves. It's rooted in God who is love, who is wise, who's all-powerful, who's all-knowing. He's perfectly victorious. That is hope-giving. And I say that because I need to remind you of that. We forget as believers quickly, don't we? And, and I say that because you need to remind me of that, that God is always successful, even in apparent times of chaos. And I say that because we need to remind each other of that. That's part of the beauty of being a part of a congregation, a committed to a, a local body of Christ as we have people that we know that we walk through the storms of life that we pray with, we share our struggles with, our anxieties with, and we minister one to another in the priesthood of believers, praying for each other and going to the Lord with each other. That's the good news that we remember even in apparent chaos, God is still faithful. God is still faithful. God is always successful in all that He does. We see, secondly, that all whom the Father has given to believe upon Jesus will believe upon Jesus. As the world seems to crumble, we are a part of a kingdom that will not be shaken. And there is certainty to this kingdom. All that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. They will believe in Him. There is no possibility of the opposite. God didn't send Jesus as a dice roll, hoping it would work out. There is certainty in His sending Him. And there is certainty of all that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son by belief. And this is, ought to be hope-giving and joy spilling out of us as we discuss this reality. Three different times in this address. Did you see them? Three different times in this address, Jesus unashamedly points to the success of the Father. Verse 37, verse 44 and 45, and in verse 65. All that He draws will come to belief in the Son. How beautiful is that as we think about our own selves? The ways that we often shift back and forth. 
Things we thought were certain suddenly made uncertain. And yet with confidence we see in these texts that all whom the Father has given to believe upon the Jesus will believe upon Jesus. So we bid all people with love and with confidence and with urgency. We tell all people of all places without discrimination, pouring out our energy, our time, and our talent, and our treasure. We bid all people to come and believe upon Jesus and have life eternal. Know the life-changing love of God. What confidence this gives us as those who cast the gospel seeds, the news of the goodness of our Lord, God, man, Christ's response. But we do so not dependent upon our winsomeness, not dependent upon our charm or our lack of charm. We do so because the assurity of our great God has the ability to bring people who are dead to life. One day, church, family, beloved, your and my body will be placed in a grave. But we are confident as Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, so too we will with certainty receive a glorified, physical, resurrected body just as Jesus did. And we will be together with Him. These are words of comfort, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. There is a certainty to that. And listen, there is a certainty that all who believe upon Jesus, all that the Father draws, all that will come and were given to the Son will come to the Son. And this ought to give us that same sense of peace and joy. But it ought never to lead us to a point of voyeurism, a point of watching things unfold in the earth like we're watching a movie or a play or a concert. For God bids us to come and He commissions us to go and to make disciples. In the context of our homes where we are currently largely bound, digitally with others that we interact with, but this is the calling and the gift that God gives us to participate as those who sow the gospel seeds. And by God's grace, He brings a harvest as He's harvested us to eternal life. This is good news. Our confidence is in God. Practically, I encourage you as the video of the gospel in this structure of our worship service of God, man, Christ response. We posted that to social media not long ago. We've included it in the week to week this past week. Watch that a number of times. Write out your testimony. You can share it with confidence and clarity. Share the gospel. What a joy it is to partner together as proclaimers and livers of the gospel. That's a beautiful truth, a hope-giving truth in the success of our God. And third, in 37 through 40 and 44, we note that Jesus is successful to perfectly do the will of the Father. Jesus is successful to perfectly do the will of the Father. Why is that good news? Because there are no weak links in salvation. There's no weak link. Jesus wants to make clear in a context in which a multitude are about to walk away, very possibly we're talking over 10,000 people walked away in this scene in a 24-hour period. And Jesus wants to make sure His disciples understand that all that the Father has given to Him, He will lose none, but He will raise them up again on the last day. 
Perhaps you hear that and you read these words that Jesus speaks. Everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and Jesus will raise them up on the last day. And perhaps you're one who hears that and you struggle with a fear of losing your salvation, believer. And to you, I encourage you, Jesus is not a liar. And perhaps you hear that and you say, but you don't know the shame that I feel. You don't know what I've done or what's been done to me. And I remind you that Jesus is not a liar. All that the Father has given Him, He will keep. He will lose none. John 8 will make this point even more abundantly clear. Jesus always does the will of the Father. You were called by God, you're kept by Christ, and you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, believer. And I can assure you that the times of your greatest anxiety are likely times when you look to yourself. I know they are for me. See, when I look at myself, I'm filled with pride. Pride that leaks insecurity. And what we must do and we're called to do is to look to Jesus and be reminded that there was nothing save-worthy in you, beloved, in eternity past. That God in His great love and grace and mercy for His glory would call you to eternal life. There was nothing praiseworthy in you in which He looked and said, I need them on my team. They're going to do such great things for me. They're going to be so good. And if they blow it, I'm going to get rid of them. No, no, no. All of our salvation is by the grace of God, unearned favor lavished upon us. While we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Our security is kept in being kept by the Lord. That we are hidden in Christ and Christ hidden in God, our hope of glory. This is the good news. That's the answer, is not to look to ourselves, but to look to Christ. There is no weak link. You say, but what, what about me? There is no weak link. Robert Murray Mc. Shea, he was a pastor in the early 1800s, Scottish pastor, so he certainly sounded a lot more cool than I do. This Scottish pastor, he, he died just before his 30th birthday. But God used him in great ways in his writing and in his preaching in particular. And as many of those sermons then have been recorded and published over the last 200 years or so. And in them, he gives us a beautiful statement that I would give to you and, and to me to remember. And he tells us in short that for every look to self, we must take 10 looks to Christ. It says specifically, for every look itself, take 10 looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus and all things will appear little in comparison with eternal realities. And he follows it up with this example, summarizing. But he says, how many millions of dazzling jewels and pearls are at this moment hidden in the depths of the ocean in caves? 
in the recesses of the ocean. He says, likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. That's good news. That's hope-giving. A believing and grieving family's confidence as they stand at the grave of a believer is not in the excellence of which they wrote the obituary that they submitted to the newspaper. Their hope and their peace and their confidence as they grieve with hope as in the greatness of their God and Savior to whom the one now in the grave confessed. And so too is ours as we live. Our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in the one we confess and profess and are kept by. That is hope-giving news that is life-changing. It's life-changing. Yes, this text is heartbreaking components, but it is ultimately hope-giving into all who believe upon Christ. Oh, it is life-changing. Life-changing, come and believe upon Jesus, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. To eat and to drink of Jesus, making this very clear in this text, to eat and to drink of Jesus is to come and to believe in Jesus. We are witnesses then. We're witnesses. We're witnesses that we have come and believe upon Jesus and we bid you likewise as those who have been sharing testimonies. You hear the testimonies. We're witnesses of the faith of and the goodness of and the gift of life we've received in Christ. We're not better than anyone. We are those who have found life in His Son. Jesus looks at His disciples and He asks them as the crowd is leaving, and he looks at them and he says, are y'all going to leave as well? And Peter, who speaks up as the mouthpiece of the disciples, sans Judas, he responds to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? And you are the words of life, the words of eternal life, and you're the one in whom we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He gives this beautiful confession. To whom else shall we go? That's life-changing. Every one of us who know Christ, we came from a way of life of something else. We came from someplace else. But we found life and life eternal and the Holy One of God, Jesus. It's Him we proclaim. It's He that we learn of and we follow after as disciples, called to make disciples. And we call you, will you come to believe upon Jesus, the words of life? Will you confess Him with your lips that Jesus is God, that you're a sinner and that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Trust in Jesus. Confess Him. Share that with us. We want to walk with you as disciples of Jesus. That's good news. Heartbreaking text, yes. Hope-giving text, absolutely. Life-changing text, we are witnesses.
Next steps. Next steps, two. Next steps. First is, will you call somebody? Will you schedule time this week? You know, if we don't schedule it, we rarely do it. So in a time where many of us, our schedules are up in the air, would you take time today? I mean, we're talking right now. To find a time, schedule a time, could be today, could be any time in which you schedule it, you put somebody's name in your phone, in your calendar, or write it on the calendar, and say, I'm going to contact them, see how they're doing, pray with them, and help them take another look at Jesus on this day. Maybe I'm going to help them take 10 looks at Jesus, right? And you know, when we help somebody look to Jesus, what do we default do? We find ourselves looking to Jesus and being built up by that as well. That's good news. So that's next step number one. Next step number two is, is, is you and, and all of us have been rescued from believing in somebody else for life, but we found life in Jesus. Where was that area before? Where or to whom did you find yourself going? And would you take time strategically and intentionally to pray today that God would liberate those who still blindly go to that place for life and identity? And then would you follow that up by asking God to give you boldness and wisdom that He might use you, use your testimony, use you to speak to them the words of life, that all who come and believe upon Jesus have life eternal. He is the Holy One of God. The church family, feast on Jesus.